Hey, welcome to the Common Good Podcast. So excited for this conversation today. Kaji Doza is a friend of mine, is a great pastor and leader. I think you're going to really love this conversation that, that we have about a court case that she just completed in a lawsuit she had to file against the Department of Homeland Security and Border Patrol for violating her rights. A judge just ruled last week that the federal government through the the um, Homeland Security and Border Patrol violated her religious rights and freedoms by targeting her and putting her on a particular watch list because of the work she was doing at the border. She tells a story about how she got into that. We also talk about the work that she does on uh, freedom and liberation around reproductive rights. It's a really powerful conversation. Um, Reverend Kaji is in New York City. She's the pastor of Park Street's uh, church, Christian church in New York City, and is just a great activist and a really great leader. Uh, hope you follow her on all the things that she does, and it's uh, really wonderful. So here's my conversation with the Reverend Kaji. All right, Kaji, so good to have you on the uh, on the podcast. Thanks for all the good work that you do. Uh, you're the pastor of uh, Park Street Christian Church in New York. Uh, you're an activist. You're a good friend. You're an encourager of people. Uh, you're um, you do all kinds of things. Uh, what else do you do that's good for people to know when we you know get to talking about these important issues you work on? What what else is it about you that you know uh, about yourself that would be good for other people to know? Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Doug. I, I think that much like you, my whole mission is just to follow Jesus and try to do and model my life after the sorts of priorities that he had. So where, where I see places that I can help, for example, with folks who are seeking refugee status or folks who are seeking refugee status within the states from other states that might be harming them for one reason or another, including in the reproductive justice space, mm -hmm. you know, I, I try to help. Yeah. So I want, I want to ask you a little bit about that because you work in, in big situations, right? The topics that you take on, like how do we help people feel safe in the reproductive choices in this country? What about people who are trying to come in the country or are already here that feel the pressure of a government that seems to be working in opposition to them? You pastor a historic big building church in New York City, you know, the nation's one of the world's largest cities. Like you're in big situations dealing with big, big issues. Uh, can you just talk a bit about that? How does that feel for you? What, what, why do you do that? Is, did you choose that on purpose? Uh, how did this, how did this all come about? It certainly isn't a calling for everyone. And I think for those of us who could work in that space, we should. And I think that's how it emerged for me. But I grew up in Washington, D.C. My parents have always done big things. Um, and I think that I come from a family that has often wanted to attack and I'm going to use that language <laughs> intentionally, has wanted to attack big problems rather than the smaller ones. And so, you know, there are folks who are called to serve food to folks who are hungry from day to day, and that is God's work and very, very important. And I think there are more people who are willing to do what we would call the charity work, um, the Caritas work, mm -hmm. and maybe fewer who are able to or have the privilege to look farther down the line and say, like, how do we 
keep people from being hungry. And I guess that's the work that Park Avenue Christian Church and, and I have been called to do is to stop the problem at its source mm-hmm. and both have to work that justice work versus that charity work both have to work in, in harmony, I think. So we're, we're talking, you know, today, just the days, two days after Easter, you know, on the, I guess on the Julian calendar and for the Orthodox church, Easter is still coming or the middle of uh, Passover and still in the midst of, of Ramadan, like these historic stories and there's some hope that can be found in all of those stories, Easter, Ramadan, Passover, can also be super exhausting. And you're in those spaces. How, how, how do you do with that? And when people probably hear about all the work that you do, some of what we're going to talk about today and just sort of keeping up with your, your activism and, and personal spirituality and public spirituality, um, I'm sure people say to you a lot, like, wow, isn't that exhausting? And so, so is it? And, and if so, how do you... Uh, how do you do it? I absolutely love Holy Week. I think that in the Christian tradition, being starting on Palm Sunday and taking the dis- discipline of walking with Jesus. I mean, one of the few things he asked of, of the disciples during that season was just to stay with him and be with him for, for a moment. And so I think that's what we're supposed mm. to do as well. So I, I try to take the discipline in Holy Week not to take meetings and not to do all those other things that uh, that can fill up the space just so that I can stay with Jesus for a minute and focus on the story. And that makes Maundy Thursday and that celebration of the Last Supper just so much more meaningful because I'm gathering with others intentionally to share a meal and agape love feast. This Wednesday was the first night of Passover, and I had the honor of spending that with uh, one of the rabbis whose uh, synagogue is just down the street from me and his family. And my daughter, whose father has a Jewish background, had her first Passover Seder. And got to, she was the youngest person at the table, so she got to ask the four questions what makes this uh, night so special and in fact the song one of the songs we sang Dainu, which means it would have been enough inspired the point of my sermon on easter sunday because the whole idea is that it would have been enough for god to create us and form us from clay it would have been enough to breathe life into us it would have been enough to drive us through the exodus it would have been enough to give us liberation it would have been enough to send us jesus it would have been enough that jesus kept going and the resurrection happened and then god's never done it's so beautiful so it all has really tied together in a way that has lifted my spirits, in fact, because that's what God does. Yeah, and the, and this work that you've been, and I want to talk specifically about the immigration work that led to um, a whole lot of things that Homeland Security and Border Patrol did to you and other activists, and then a court case. Long and exhausting work, and ministry can be long and exhausting work, and human rights can be long and exhausting work, and living a life into certain decades can feel exhausting. Um, uh, uh, d- does this kind of work feel particularly draining to you? Uh, is it motivating? Are you uh, somebody who's like, hey, I, I like big challenges. I like a struggle. I want to do, I, I want to do many things and I want to, I want to get after all of them. Or do you find yourself like, hey, I've got to pick carefully what I'm going to do and how I'm going to, how I'm going to engage and what topics I'm going to choose to, to find myself in, involved in. 
you know, I think a lot of people are surprised when I say that I did not start the ministry as a justice-focused pastor. I, I was just, you know, a regular parish, parish pastor, congregational pastor, working with folks, dealing with what most pastors are thinking about, pastoral care, funerals and weddings and births and hospital visits and all that. And I, in the earlier years of my ministry, actually felt more exhausted by that Hmm. than I do by my justice work, because I think everybody has different things that feed them and then drain the work. Mm -hmm. And for me, a meeting where church leaders are dealing with an intractable issue that they've been fighting over for 30 years is way more exhausting than trying to resolve the world's biggest issues. Uh, So I I, I don't know. I think what, as a more seasoned pastor, I've learned to do is to build some balance into the work so that the things that feed me, like Mm -hmm. helping people uh, and coming up with solutions to very complicated things. That is what drives me and gives me the energy to do some of the other more hard things like dealing with intractable problems uh, within a community. And fortunately at the Park Avenue Christian Church, we don't really have those anymore. So we've worked through all that kind of work, but that then allows me to have the energy to do um, some of these other harder justice based things. Well, speaking of one of those, um, some people might be just hearing about your story sort of at the end of this particular circumstance, which is this, as this um, Religion News Service story says, a a judge rules that immigration officials violated a pastor's religious freedom rights. And that pastor they're speaking about is you. Um, Can you give us a background on the the multi-year experience that that led to this to this headline, and I'm sure for some people who are like, um, "Wow, that's really great work that you did," and thanks for standing up to it and doing the hard work. You you must have been thinking as this was all unfolding over the years. I don't know where this is going, and I don't know how this is going to get for. I don't know how this is going to go, and what this is all going to mean. So, will you take us back? You you were in Tijuana. You were trying to care for people there. Um, trying to engage in the 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 broken and intention sometimes intentionally cruel design of our immigration and refugee process, and that that led to a whole number of things. Can you can you are you comfortable recounting the story, or is it like oh my gosh, I don't want to have to retell this whole story once once again? Are, are you good giving us a quick recap? Yes, I can. I can certainly okay. do Thanks. that. It- And Doug, I would start it a little bit farther back in how I got involved in immigration work in the first place, because I think that that helps to understand how we wound up in Tijuana. But back in about 2008, 2009, I was serving another church here in New York City, St. Peter's, and we had someone who needed some help. His name was Salim, and he was a big part of our community. He was a Muslim man. He was in our uh, breakfast program and sold children's books on the street. Everybody loved Salim. Anyway, Salim got a letter from ICE saying that he was going to be deported. And he came to us and said, you know, I can't figure out what to do. And this was devastating to the community. And I had no involvement in immigration before this. But I got on the phone to many of the immigrant 
service organizations here in New York City that do great work, but nobody would take him because he had a criminal conviction. Uh, and I won't even say what for, but it was just, it wasn't something like that seems like he should have been turned away for. And finally, in a clergy meeting, I met someone, uh, I was talking to Reverend Donna Scopper from Judson Memorial Church, which is a Baptist UCC church. And she said, well, we just started up a program at Judson called New Sanctuary where we'll take anybody. So maybe meet with the leader. So I met with him and they gave Salim some help. He was not deported. And what we discovered was that we had a model for how we could work with people who are facing either deportation or wondering how to get the proper paperwork to live in the United States and that that was scalable. And so we took it from maybe 20 people we were serving in 2009 to uh, in 2016 by 20, yeah, by 2016. And especially after that in the Trump administration, it got up to about maybe 10, 15,000 people here in New York City. And, and we said, okay, well, this model we have could perhaps be effective as we were facing what they were calling the migrant caravan at the U.S. southern border. And since I was a pastor in San Diego, in between the two New York City churches that I served here and just loved it there, uh, I had relationships. And I said, well, why don't we go to San Diego, Tijuana, and we're going to bring faith leaders and people of faith and moral conscience down to the border so that they can meet and witness and accompany people who are seeking status in the United States at the border. So that's how I wound up in mm -hmm. Tijuana with this group of clergy. And what year was that? What, what year did you take the, the group of leaders? This, uh, we started in 2018 and we okay. basically built what was called the sanctuary caravan, which was, thousands of uh, people with faith and moral conscience who wanted to do this work across the country. And the hope was that people could go to the border, understand what was happening, think of ways to creatively support from wherever they lived, yeah. and then to take that back with them to build places of refuge and sanctuary in their own, in their own cities and towns. And, it, and that did happen. It was effective. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I was I was a beneficiary of that. I was pastoring a church in Minneapolis during that time, and like a lot of places, uh, we made a decision to house people that uh, ICE was going to remove from the country because of the decisions of the Trump administration, and and it, and it had been going on under the Obama administration as well. There's been a bipartisan uh, lack of care for migrants and refugees in this country. It's 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 been something that's been sort of heartbreaking, but it picked up a particular level of pain in 2016 and 2017 and your movement was very inspiring the movement that you uh, are speaking of was very inspiring to the work that we were doing here uh, when i was pastoring in minneapolis and we got involved in all of this and people started asking questions you know what can we do with our own resources which i'm sure is what you what you wanted but then also people wanted to get close to the border um like you can you know, we would regularly say to people, look if if you want to know what the immigration circumstance is in the united states go outside, say hello to someone, right? Like chances are almost anywhere in the country, especially in rural America, you can meet all kinds of people who are implicated by the, by the policies. And so that's very true. You can just go there and experience it. But also something about being at that point of contact 
at the U.S.-Mexico border, um, that shared space that um, we often talk about the border as if it's ours, you know, in the United States, like it's our border. By definition, borders are shared borders, right? Like Tijuana and, and San Diego are shared communities and people share those share those spaces. And when you get there, you begin to see something something really different. Um, so you went to Tijuana, brought a bunch of faith leaders and were doing your thing. And so how does that from 2018 lead to a headline that says a judge rules that immigration officials violated your religious freedom rights. What, what took place in between those, those, um, this headline and taking people to the border in 2018? Right. <laughs> that's true. You did ask that before and I didn't exactly answer oh, your okay. question. Um, but no, that's exactly right. And yes, we were struggling under this, under the Obama administration too, because we called him the deporter in chief for many years. Uh, so Yes, fast forward to 2018, we're down there and we set up this program for the sanctuary caravan. And while we were there, one of the things we did was ask one of the partner organizations that we were working with, because it was important to us that we don't just like come down there and say, we know how to do this. We're from New York City. Here's our way and pick it up. That was not going to work. So we had a partner organization called Al otro lado, which means on the other side, and their base in Tijuana was some of the most brave and courageous and amazing and faithful people I've ever met. And Al otro lado, who give very direct services, including legal support and food and, and as much shelter as possible. And particularly, one of the most beautiful things that they do is that they rescue people from the bondage uh, of the cartels who are very, very active in um, in Tijuana and at the southern border. So once people show up vulnerable, they can get kidnapped into service of the cartels and doing really awful, terrible work. And so, I mean, the, one of the days that we were there, we were with a young lady, a young, young teenager who had been kidnapped by the cartel and forced into service. And we were able to help to get her to safety and she was able to cross the border. So, you know, they do that kind of work. And while we were down there, we were invited to, because we were a group of clergy, to officiate for weddings for people who had shown up at the southern border uh, as families that had never had the benefit of a church-blessed wedding. And so we were curious about what that would look like because we knew we didn't have authorization to offer a state sanctioned marriage in Mexico. That wasn't something we had the power to do, but they were just looking for us to basically bless their unions, their common law marriages. And so we did that. We officiated for about 17 of those and all of those couples had, except for one had children, you know, it, these are, these were legit couples. And then, you know, that was the end of the day uh, for me. I mean, I, that felt like the holiest and most incredible thing we mm -hmm. could do. We blessed the babies. We interviewed them. We, I mean, it was just, yeah. we listened to their stories. It was gorgeous. Anyway, as it turns out, that wound up being something the U.S. government didn't like. And because we officiated for these marriages, they decided, and I'm not exactly sure why they picked me. Maybe it's because I was one of May, yeah, I was the only African-American woman who was part of it, and they loved to pick black women off. But um, 
anyway, so they decided to retaliate against me for officiating those ceremonies and for working mm -hmm. with these migrants. So then I wound up on this secret government watch list, which I smile about now, not because I'm happy, not because it wasn't a terrible ordeal, but what do you do if you don't smile? And um, when I learned, <laughs> what did I learn? When I learned about this, I was um, looking at an article on Facebook that someone had shared, like, look at this, this is terrible. There was a whistleblower who had shared with NBC in San Diego the, this watch list, the secret government watch list, which he understood to be illegal. And this judge now has confirmed that it was, but that was four years later. So he handed it to NBC. They started to investigate. They did the story and I saw my photo or I thought I saw my photo, my passport photo kind of blurred out. And I got in touch with the reporter, Tom Jones, who was the, um, on the story. And I asked him, I was like, am I on this list of 59 people? And these were 59. I should describe who they are. They were journalists, like Pulitzer Prize winning journalists. They were activists who work with the migrants and bring people food. They were attorneys and photographers who uh, basically that was the group who were um, then put on this list and retaliated against in all kinds of ways, including detention and interrogation at the border. That certainly happened to me. Uh, they also revoked my global or they tried to revoke my century, which is, expedited border crossing mm -hmm. um, and it as we later learned about it and after i filed my lawsuit and after the u.s worked really really hard not to release any information and to lie which they did several times um and and just blocked so much of the truth telling that we wanted to be able to do and just to understand the scope of what they were up to, I, I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know, yeah. like, what does it mean to be on a secret government watch list? Are they following me? Yes. Are they surveilling me? Yes. All those things turned out to be true. And throughout the course of the litigation, we also learned that one government official, like high-ranking CBP, Customs and Border Patrol official, wrote to the Mexican government and told them to that I was a U.S. citizen who did not have, was unlikely to have the right to be in Mexico and that I should be arrested and returned to the custody of CBP for further questioning, which in trial, this man admitted that he completely made up. He actually said it was literally creative writing. So he put my life at risk for inexplicable reasons, except for what we knew, which was that they were retaliating against me for this ministry to migrants. So it was horrific and um, terrifying because this is, by the way, the most powerful government in the world. And then they put me into danger asking the federales to arrest me for officiating for marriages that were only churchless. I mean, it, it's just like, what, what is happening? Yeah, and, and look, it, it, if if people are doubting any of this, there was a trial, and a tr in the trial there were depositions, and there were, um, I don't know if confessions is the right word, but there were declarations from Border Patrol agents and others that they did these things, that this is not, I think they're doing these, or we wonder if they're doing these, this is, this is confirmed that these are actions that was taken against you and others by the government. And the thing that's shocking about it 
is until this was released by a, as you say, a whistleblower and then put out in the press and then brought out in legal proceedings, you wouldn't even know this is going on. Like people don't know why they're asked to step aside at the, at a border patrol entrance. And you would have had no idea that ICE agents or border patrol people in New York are paying attention to your social media posts, that they're scanning your activities in the world, that they that they see you as someone who might be working against the better interests of the United States. And truthfully, some of us, you know, we, we recognize that they, our government does that. And sometimes that feels reassuring, right? Hey, the government's looking into things. Like we want to know if people are plotting an attack against the country, or you want to know if there's somebody who's at risk of taking guns into a place and and killing people. Like we ask these questions, like, why didn't we know? Isn't anybody looking at this? But the other side of it is, this is how they look at this, right? They put people on lists and they start to infringe on your freedom because of your religious activities. Um, so, I, I mean... Yeah, I mean... How did that land on you? Yeah, legitimate law enforcement investigation is nothing that I have ever opposed. And if indeed, for example, they were investigating whether or not there was a problem with the marriages that I officiated, then that would be fine. But that's not what they were doing. What they were doing was trying to make it hard to serve migrant communities and to chill our effects. And they were doing it. There's this thing, the Constitution, which prevents that from happening. And a very conservative federal judge appointed by Donald Trump ruled in my favor saying that's what they were doing. They were trying to chill my work. They were retaliating against me and doing illegal things that are against the Constitution, against the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, specifically because of my ministry. And that just happens to be illegal. You can't just do that. And it's interesting because the the guys who interrogated me at the border we deposed them in my lawsuit and both of them are from this team called the tactical terrorism response team. And their job is to do exactly what you were talking about. They are supposed to track down cartels. They're supposed to stop drug trafficking at the border. They're supposed to stop human trafficking at the border and very important work, right? And they're wasting, if you look at the amount of time that they put into investigating me and my work, my ministry, it is such a waste of time. And it was specifically because they were asked to make our lives miserable for helping migrants. That's not acceptable. Um, what, what explains it? Do you have- Oh, and you, sorry, one more thing, yeah. one more thing about that. So the guys in their depositions actually said, but why are we, why are we wasting our time talking to her? They recognized that I was credible. They told the court that they just couldn't believe that they were being asked to waste their time wow. on someone like me. But they were under orders to do so or that- just mm-hmm. sort of how this with this somehow the system demanded that of them and they just said we had to do what we were what we were told to do yeah they were under orders to investigate the helpers at the border and who, and they thought who, it was disgusting who was giving those orders do, do you, is that known yet nobody would name names yeah but of course since it was so consistent across so many different parts of 
the Department of Homeland Security apparatus, it's clear that it came from pretty high up. So one of the questions that I had when, I, I mean, I've been following this story for a long time, know about your work It informed work that we did in 2021. We did a cross-country bike ride along the U.S.-Mexico border and trying to get people close. And I mean, I kept up on this for a, for a long time. And then when the the story came out a few weeks ago of the the judge ruling in your favor and, and condemning the actions of Homeland Security and um, Border Patrol, I wondered... How, how does one file a lawsuit against the federal government and get the level of, you know, to depose people? Like what are the, what were the machinations of, of all of that that made that, that made that possible? Well, I would say by the grace of God, it really did feel like a blessing, but to go backwards, the trial that we had in August of 22 was just it felt like a holy moment because I told my lawyers, I was like, all right, they're going to, of course, I'm going to have to testify. I want the opportunity to share from the position of my faith what happened and why I was doing what I was doing. And I pretty much approached the each question that everyone asked me, including the cross-examination from the Department of Justice as a little moment to preach. And what that meant was that it was church for two days in that courthouse. And it's clear when you look at the judge's ruling that my testimony there, that moment of church really was influential in his decision. And I think then how I was able to win this lawsuit, yes, was by the law and it did happen to be the bit that the work they had done was unconstitutional and also just wrong, morally wrong. But I think it also was just a pretty much a miracle that, that we were able to pull that off. So thanks be to God. But in terms of like how we actually did that, I happened to know an attorney who had pulled off a pretty amazing first amendment win for someone who I work very closely with, Ruby Rugbeer, and his name is Stanton Jones. And so when I was in court for Ruby in the Second Circuit here in New York City, when he was up for appeal on his First Amendment case, I was sitting there and listening to this amazing attorney argue. And I heard the voice of God say, there's your First Amendment attorney. And I, I was like, huh, that's weird. I don't need a person that's an attorney. <laughs> what are you talking about that? And I was just like, whatever. Huh. And then a few months later, I learned about this, um, this government watch list. And so I reached out to him on Facebook. I didn't even have his phone number and just messaged him. And he's like, okay, I'm on it. And he went to his law firm, Arnold and Porter, and said, I have a mm. client who I think we should take on. And they agreed to take me on pro bono. And meanwhile, other people were in touch because they realized how bad this all was. So I talked to the ACLU and some other organizations about representing me. But I also talked to a young woman named Stephanie Yanes. I don't remember how we knew each other. But anyway, we were Facebook friends. And she said, well, my organization, Protect Democracy, is interested in representing you as well. And so I talked to Stanton and they talked and it turned out that they decided to be 
co-counsel with Stanton leading and Stanton and that team from Protect Democracy, which was founded by former White House counsel from the last several administrations, Mm. bipartisan administrations, who wanted to, under the Trump administration, just do exactly what they said, protect democracy. And they're still working at that because democracy still needs protection. So anyway, those two incredibly able teams came together and Mm. I have had probably about 40 attorneys working. It's a multi-million dollar lawsuit. And that's one of the problems with our justice system is I was able to win yeah, because I was right, but also because, uh, you know, I had incredible resources behind me. Thanks be to God. And, and to be clear, you, you weren't defending yourself. Like the, the government wasn't prosecuting you for any of these activities. You realized through a freedom of information act and leaks that this was going on. And you brought the fight to them to say, you violated my rights. Like you all initiated that, which, which I'm grateful for and glad that you did and think that's, that's important. But that was a big decision, I'm guessing, for you to decide, hey, I, I'm not just going to look at this and say, I, I can't believe what happened. They shouldn't have done that. I'm going to moderate my behavior somehow. You said, I know a First Amendment attorney and I think we're going to press this issue. Is, is that right? You, 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 made, you made that decision yeah. to, to, to move forward and, and what, what was going on with you? you know, in that, in the process of making that decision? Well, I don't know if I've conveyed, I don't think I have that just how terrifying it was when I saw the news of the watch list and that I was on it. I, I literally fell to the floor and hid under my table. And, um, I, I feel like I have this image of my lawyers coming and like over the course of deciding to file the lawsuit, sort of like coaxing me out from that place of like cowering in fear. And, and part of it, I had motivation, of course, to help the movement, but I also just wanted to be protected because I didn't know the extent yeah. of, of what they were going to do to retaliate. And, and I wanted to make it harder for them to do that to me. Nice. So have being in federal court, I thought could potentially give me some protections that I might not have if I was still just hiding under the table. So, yeah, I mean, and and filing, filing a lawsuit against the federal government, especially the department of Homeland security is terrifying. I mean, I walk into ice now and everybody knows me, um, you know, from the police, the DHS police to you know, the heads of everybody, they're, they're well aware of who I am. And so to be on everybody's radar is mm-hmm. not a comfortable thing. Yeah. Um, I got death threats, not from them though, but from people who, I don't know why, but they just didn't like what I was doing. Um, my child had to be escorted by an armed guard to school because of threats on that child's life, my husband too. I mean, it was, it was quite an ordeal. Even to this day, there are men, um, off duty, New York city, police officers, black men who stand sentry at the door of the church Mm. to protect me every single week at any time for anything that is predictable in my behaviors like church, 
they will be there to make sure that I'm okay. So there's had to be just the amount of support that I've received is pretty incredible. Um, I mean, not pretty incredible again, and then another yeah. miracle. Well, I think that really says it well that you went from a scary circumstance that this brought you into and it wasn't solved by a lawsuit, but you're trying to use anything that a citizen has the rights to use to be protected from the the overreach of the government and, and also from other citizens. I mean, truthfully, you start getting involved in immigration and there's an entire narrative in this country that's built on a war and a fight narrative and a protection and a militia narrative and all of that. And you get down to the border and you can see it there and you hear people talking about it and you hear the governor of Texas currently talking in ways that are deputizing citizens to, to uh, protect the country. And you can see how people would be really unnerved, including you, about other citizens of this country feeling that you're the one who's putting the United States at risk and somehow you're an enemy to, to the things of this country when the, the facts are you were the one who was mistreated by the government. You were not the one doing the, doing the violation, but that can all be, that can all be turned around and it takes a real act of bravery to do all of these things that you've, that you've done. And I don't do this work for people who agree with me. I don't know. I don't have like any kind of test on the migrants or on anybody. I serve what their beliefs are, their political affiliations and so forth. Uh, in fact, I can tell you right now, many people who we've served, I don't agree with on, you know, ideological bases, but we do it because whatsoever you do to the least of these, you do to me. And, and as it turns out, when the government overreaches, as it did in my case, that is the behavior when they get away with it. Administrations change, right? So that can easily, just as easily be turned against uh, some of these folks who are opposing what I do. So in an interesting way, what I have, the fight that I've had on this First Amendment issue can even help people who I very much disagree with on other mm. things. So is this, is this case concluded now? Is it, is, is this the end of it or is there still something more to come? No, <laughs> it seems <laughs> it endless, but we're <laughs> see it right. In the eye roll. Uh, so, right. I think that it appears to me that the government will not be appealing the judge's decision, which is a wise decision on their part because the judge, judge Robinson, who, by the way, I have to give great thanks to because he made a very good ruling and it was fair and I don't know that he would have been disposed to rule for me, but he really saw the evidence in my favor. All of it, every bit of evidence was in my favor and he ruled that way. So anyway, he has ruled in such a way that there really isn't any grounds for appeal that the government could take. So I'm, we don't anticipate that there will be an appeal. So now uh, the only thing to work through, I think, or they were required to write to the Mexican government and to let them know that the note that they had sent was a lie. So they did that, which is, I was shocked that they did it because just all throughout this litigation, everything from the government had just been awful. Just sometimes dumb, sometimes just mm -hmm. wrong. I mean, it was just terrible to read. And so 
getting them, seeing them doing the right thing for once was just so beautiful. It, it meant a lot to me. So anyway, they did write to the government and, and admit to their lie. And then um, the next piece that they have to do is to pay my lawyers reasonable legal fees. And so that'll probably be a, a set of conversations. But once that's done, then that's it. And just to be clear, I did not sue for damages, nor can you sue for damages in a civil rights case like this against the government. So the only money to exchange hands will have to do with the attorneys, which of course I'm not and won't see. Yeah. Um, the, the connection of this work that, that you're doing um, uh, with, with migrants and with um, helping people to find the legal accesses that are available to them is part of larger work of human agency and how people are going to have the freedom to act in the world uh, without interference of the government or other individuals preventing them from doing the things that they, that they know matter. It's my category. I get it, not yours, but like this category, this, this set of understandings of how we're going to live with each other and how people are going to act and where the law fits into that and what the law allows and the law doesn't allow. And legal situations are very, they change. I mean, that's why there's judges and that's why there's rulings and that's why there's lawmakers and that's why there's repeals and, and new, new laws being passed. In the area of, of human reproductive rights and f autonomy of people's bodies, they're, they're very similar issues. For some people, they feel like you know access to healthcare or abortion is one category. Immigration is another but as I've talked with you in previous times, I, I feel like you you have a way of seeing this in, in, in as a as an understanding of autonomy and how a person has agency over their body and what they have the freedom to do and should be able to do and what the government and other individuals can do about it. Do 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 you see it that way? Is that is that an accurate description? And 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 what's the work? What's the other work that you're doing now in in areas of reproduction and rights and uh, freedoms? I certainly don't disagree with, with what you've said, Doug, although I frame it a little bit differently because I, I always try to start with what God has given us. And I think that what God has given us and intends for us is liberation and freedom. And I believe that as the Black women who started the reproductive justice movement, many years ago said like if when and how someone chooses to birth then it should be done in freedom it should be done safely it should be done in such a way that the child they bring into the world has the resources to thrive and to live and to thrive hmm. and so that's what i work for i work for those things and yeah. there are many things that we scroll back from that to realize need to be addressed to allow for that. So if, when, and how someone chooses to birth, then calls up a number of things. Like we need safety. I, I'm a black woman who almost died. So this is, this is why I do this work. I'll tell them my story mm. about my daughter is, uh, oh yeah, that's right. I try not to tell their age. Right. Anyway, my child is, um, my child is pretty young, but, I think two years after she was born, my husband and I decided to 
try for our second child. We were ready. And I got pregnant right away as I did with my daughter. And, you know, we were preparing for a child. And eventually one of the ultrasounds came back with, um, with no heartbeat. And my obstetrician at the time said to me, well, you know, first of all, just her face was so crestfallen. She liked us as a couple. And she just looked at me and she said, there's no heartbeat here. And I just want you to understand you have two options. And she said, there's no chance of of a birth here, but you could um, have an operation, dilation and curatage, DNC as it's called, and we can evacuate your womb or the other option is to just let that happen naturally, uh, not naturally, but let that happen, take its course whenever it is that your body decides to, to eject everything. And, um, and I didn't know what to do. One, I was a broke pastor with no money and I didn't know my health insurance wouldn't through the United Church of Christ considered abortion which is what a DNC is, an elective procedure at the time. So they wouldn't pay for it. And I didn't have the money to pay for it out of, you know, in cash. So that was a concern. And the other was that I wasn't sure how God would feel about me having an abortion, even though this was a, um, you know, a fetal demise, as they call it. There was no life in there. I had been, the only things I had ever heard about abortion were that God doesn't like it. So I decided to make the non-decision of not having the DMC. And um, that is, of course, the decision. And that decision almost killed me because the, uh, the miscarriage was almost deadly. And I was in the hospital for days and days and it cost way more than it would have if I had gone um, and, and then cost me in all kinds of ways. So anyway, uh, out of that, I started to try to look into, well, what really does God say about abortion and what does the tradition say? I'm not going to just take for granted what people tell me, but I'm going to look into it. And then I began to realize that indeed, the reading, I think the closer reading of scripture, especially if we take um, where this comes up, because it doesn't come up in the New Testament at all, um, the Jewish tradition seriously is that there are even circumstances where where well, first of all, that the understanding is that God, uh, God initiates life at first breath when we receive that ruah um, and when we're born. And so until then, logically, and also theologically, it's hard to define exactly when, 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 when life begins. And so the Jewish tradition, for sure, in many, many ways, and this is across like religious conservatism versus more liberal spaces, all of it um, has preserved the right for, for a birthing person, a woman to be able to um, have an abortion if needed. And so 
I take that seriously. I take yeah. the Ruach mm-hmm. seriously theologically. And so, yeah, I mean, once I started to learn that, I realized that I had been, I think, hoodwinked. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I felt so terrible. And I realized that also people like me who had done the theological and biblical work were not speaking up about it because it was scary. And once you start to talk about abortion, uh, you can really get in trouble. It's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, but I agree. You know, we, we were at a meeting together, uh, you know, Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago talking about these issues, and it's hard, and it, it breaks a no-talk rule. You know, we don't spend enough time in this country around an issue that's really meaningful to a lot of people who disagree about what the law should be and how people should behave. But for the most part, we don't talk about it, and we certainly don't talk with one another about it. We might make statements about it and say things, mm-hmm. but it's put in one of those places in our society and a lot of our relationships where it just doesn't, it just doesn't come up. Um, and, and it's part of a lot of issues like this that don't, that don't come up. Right. And, and there's a really unhealthy habit of knowing that things matter, but we won't speak of them in communities and families and churches and religious uh, leader communities and, and public meetings, we just uh, continue to avoid the, the truth of these, of these matters, and it's, and it's really difficult. So you've chosen to, to get into this and to, and to talk about it and to go to public meetings and to share, share your perspective. Is that right? Like you're. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing it. I don't really feel like it was a choice. I feel like it's an obligation. Yeah. And, and for me, those, those are different. Yep. Yeah. Because I don't know if this is what you're saying, but when I hear you say that for me, an things I choose to talk about, I also feel like I can choose not to talk about them. That's part of the choice Mm -hmm. in the, in the matter, right? You, You get to reach for the, the light switch and turn it on or off the things for which you're compelled by something means that there's something else that motivates or moves you or, and, and demands, uh, that, that you do. And there's a different level of care around those issues. Isn't there, uh, like the things that you're compelled to speak about versus the things you just are into or want to, or are motivated by there, there's a, there's a weight to them. There's a, there's a heaviness to it. As you look at what's going on currently in the uh, v- just total chaos that the that the Dobbs decision has brought to this country for the Supreme Court to say there's not going to be a single declaration of access to abortion in this country, but rather it's going to be something determined by states and now apparently by judges and FDA administrators and rulings and all of this. Uh, how are you? How are you thinking about these issues? Uh, issues of uh, abortion and 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 the, and the myriad issues that are that that are involved with it. You know, look, six months ago, if somebody had said to me, and they were saying, if you know, if Roe versus Wade falls, contraception is next, and and I thought there that is not going to be a thing. And then this ruling last weekend from a judge in Texas about access to an FDA approved medication that's been approved for 20 years, trying to ban that with no legal reasons, but just moral reasons on the opinion of the judge and my interpretation of what's going on. It's like, 
oh, there will be a judge somewhere, and maybe it's not going to be Amarillo, Texas. Maybe it'll be somewhere else who's going to say that the interruption of the start of a of a pregnancy is also something that can be limited by a state contraceptions, in other words. So it's it, it the things that seemed unthinkable to me seem much more thinkable now. Do do you feel similarly, or do you, how, how are you thinking about these? I, I come at this as a black woman, which means that we get targeted for everything earlier than everyone else. So none of it feels like much of a surprise. Mm. And for 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 us, Roe, as as my friend Alexis McGill Johnson from Planned Parenthood says, Roe was always the floor and not the ceiling. So uh, mm. the floor, however, has now been ripped out from under so many people. But I again am. Mm really trying to approach this not as much from the question of what do we do about the Miffy, Miffy Pristone ruling or how are we going to respond to Dobbs, but more to help people to rethink their priorities as Christians and to think of preserving life. And life has to be life lived in liberation in the ways that God intends for us. And when we reframe it that way, I think that we're looking farther down the road to say, mm. now how can we create the conditions for people to birth if, when, and how they sh- they would like to, uh, so that they can raise children in safety and well-being. And so it is a call then for a new awakening amongst so-called Jesus followers to actually follow him and not get caught up on the political mm-hmm tit for tat that is is really going to just rip us apart even further that's that is not my project my project Mm. is to pursue life and liberation and that should be every jesus followers project amen to that i mean that yes and man that just seems a long way away like being around the christian conversations at all it i don't know it just feels like that is not what's what people are wanting to talk about uh, leaders and parishioners and, you know, I don't know, maybe the space between what you need to talk about and are willing to talk about is, is too wide sometimes. And this might be one of those. Do you, do you think so? Or do you think there's more appetite for people to have a, this longer view conversation or this wider perspective conversation? I, I think that, I think yes to both ways of thinking about it. I think that, Sure, people are definitely caught in the day-to-day battles, but I think that people are also yearning for that longer vision, and people, other people have had it. So, I mean, just think about the conversations that were had after Nixon was elected to that then took the opportunity of the Roe versus Wade decision to create this new narrative of of you know, abortion is bad, pro-life is this specific thing that really had not taken over. I mean, even the Southern Baptist Convention was supportive right. of abortion up until a certain point, right? So it, it really was a cynical shift. And if we decide not to be hoodwinked by political actors, maybe we could get back to what God's asking us to do. But they took a long view. I mean, they were very smart. And well, if true, others are not willing to do the same thing, and, you know, the, the liberals need to figure out how to get on board with working with religious figures in a more meaningful way because 
they keep forgetting that church got us into some church got us into this and there's not going to be a way out of it without church mm. but i don't think they're seeing it quite yet yeah it sure seems that way and, and it also feels like you know not to dip into the political spheres but somehow the shift away from dobbs or shift into dobbs and away from roe versus wade that really did shake people in this country and people who even have seen themselves on one you know on a pro-life side of an issue are like this is not what i meant like i because these categories you know whatever labels we put on them of which side you're on you know choice or life or freedom they're they're real broad categories for people you know um the the details i think have been really startling and boy maybe in the midst of all this confusion something there, there can be a new kind of clarity that can come out of it. I, I just, like you, I fear that there will be people, cynical actors who will just make make new confusing categories fr- from all of this. And, and I don't really know. Um, because these are issues that people don't deal with or think about until they're faced with them often. You know, there's there tends to be a biography narrative going on in someone's, someone's story about... Uh, uh, issues around around abortion and and just sort of questions of freedom, right? Like like you're talking about that your your experience of life as a black woman and my experience of life as a white man, they're different experiences in this country. We don't have a shared experience of our, of our country, and can we have a shared future? Well, that's I guess what's up what's really up for grabs at this point because the past hasn't been a shared experience, but can the future be something we can all participate in? The answer to that is yes, and it really doesn't have to be as it has been. So that's our that's great. That's our project. I love that clarity from you. And the answer to that is yes. That is that is a confusing (laughs) question with a clear answer, and the answer is yes. Kanji Dosa, you're just the best. Uh, Thank you for this. Anything else you want to say? Anything you're up to? You want people to know about any of any of that? No, (laughs) I've said plenty, but. God well, bless everybody for all and I'm praying for you and grateful for you, Doug. Well, thank you. Thanks for thanks for being part of all this. Thank you.